So what got you started in the mine? Well, I guess it all started, uh, I had another job actually working as a glass worker. And at the time, they didn't want to give me any uh, kind of a razor or not, not, whatnot. So we were doing uh, the work of a journeyman at that time. And they still didn't want to give us any kind of a, an increase. So I started looking for a little bit more money. And my dad did work in the mines. And he said, if you ever want to make some extra money, he says, they pay really good. Come on down. You know, they're always hiring. So I decided to venture out and without talking to him, went to go and see what I could get involved in, in the mine. And then, lo and behold, he was the second level I had to get interviewed by, and it was his choice if he was going to hire or fire me, one or the other, <laughs> or just let me go and let it, let it be. I guess my level of questioning being his son was a little different than most other employees from what I learned when I finally started out. <laughs> How did he react when you showed up at the interview? Well, the first thing he did say is, what are you doing here? <laughs> we weren't on great terms at the time, so he, I just said, well, you always said, you know, if I ever want to make a little extra money, they'll, here I am. <laughs> How'd the hiring process go? Uh, it was pretty smooth. You know, uh, first you see HR and they put you through the through the ringers there and ask you a bunch of questions. And then, then they said, I hope you realize that if you're going to go underground, then your dad has to approve that. So I said, <laughs> okay, I wasn't aware of any of that. So when it, the interview did come up, then yeah, it was a little unsettling. But at first he says, I don't even know if I want to hire you just told me that flat out and I said well it's your prerogative I mean I haven't quit my other job yet so I can still go back it's not a big deal so that's where we started you were really understanding of where he was coming from oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so what were you doing with glass before I was installing glass for uh Canadian Pittsburgh Industries actually CPI and then they got bought out by uh Pittsburgh Painting Glass so they became PPG so then, long and behold, when I went to the mine, then I became involved with uh, Central Canada Potash. So that was CCP. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really interesting. But anyway, installing glasses, you know, glass pieces uh, around the city and whatnot. We did a lot of aluminum work at the Scotiabank downtown. Installed a lot of uh, units and built the frames and put the glass in on that uh, uh, co-op center in Prince Albert. That's about 13 stories there, that co-op center. I don't know if you know it. No, but are, you're up there installing it? Yeah. Yeah, we've built the frames and then physically built them in another shop. And then we uh, had them trucked over there. Then we were putting them into the building. How do you get the glass up to the 13th floor? Oh, they use the sky cranes. Pull them up there. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you were doing journeyman work with glass before? Oh, I never have. No. Oh, but... <laughs> <laughs> up until that point yeah yeah and then we were actually working on the uh, what do they call it now the, the uh sedco center there at the university that gold-plated six-sided the front thing oh you did that yeah, yeah. <laughs> put in all that glass <laughs> <laughs> there's so much glass around our world yeah so what'd you learn the most doing glass well how uh hard tempered glass is for one you can't cut that <laughs> Because we used to break frames uh, when the crates would hit the ground or whatever. Even if you chip it, it would just shell. So you get a very, very uh, thin piece of glass. It just flies off the corner or something, and now you can't use it. Because over time, hot and cold will eventually cause a crack there. So other contractors, as soon as they heard that we had broken a piece, would be ripping over there trying to take a piece of this gold glass off the top. Well, you can't cut that stuff. We tried. We had a lot of other tools and you know, know how and how to cut this stuff. And there's no way. <laughs> oh. So what properties are in it that are desirable? Well, with the Sedco Center in particular, that was uh, that's a triple pane glass. And that is actual gold foil that they have in there. And with that stuff, it keeps the heat out and the light in and filters the UV. So when you're inside that building and look out, it's just a light blue color. And that's from so, the gold coating yeah, in there? the gold foil, yeah. <laughs> oh man but you can't cut it oh no no that stuff it's tempered so well, what's very, te very... what's tempered mean well it's probably made or cooked under very high heat and, and pressure okay yeah. so it's yeah. it's extremely hard but at the same oh, yeah. time it's brittle so you... like a like a car windshield but harder than that really oh yeah and when you say shell does that mean it'll shatter the whole thing or what no does... just a little flake will come off the side eh? yeah like a very like a contact lens <laughs> it will what? come off the side. 
And then it's, is that piece worth it? it no, you can't, you, you can't use that piece after that. How come? Well, because the hot and cold on those pressure points will eventually crack those panes. Just from a contact lens. Yeah, it's got to be absolutely dead flat. <laughs> Perfect. Oh. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of years in that. I only uh, worked with that company for about a year, but it was interesting work. Yeah, definitely. So how's that contrast to being in the mine? Well, <laughs> we did work with our back a lot in the, ga- in the glass industry because those panes are very, very heavy and you have to handle them all by hand. So no machines at all. So doing that and uh, not being afraid to work with my back, I just got into the mines and that's what it was. Eh? You start out as a laborer and uh, a lot of what we do there is all by hand until you get uh, up in the ranks and then they start training you on some of the equipment, but you know, like the scoops and loaders and tour cars that we had back in the day, then you run that equipment, but <laughs> you start, you're, what are you doing by hand at first? Shoveling, <laughs> working with structure, like building, uh, putting together the, uh, room belt extensions and extending the belt out. So you could cut another room. What's a room belt? Well, that's the actual belt that the mining unit will dump onto. So the product so goes you have, on the you, belt? Yes, you have oh. a heading there and you have to extend that and get it out of the area somehow. So we have to physically put together structure once you've carved out or mined out a particular length. And then you have to fill that gap with more structure and belt and keep going. <laughs> so the belt transports it, yeah, the you product, yeah. to where it yeah. needs to go. Oh, yeah. But you're the guy shoveling it out by hand. And no, no, we're, the shoveling jobs would be in drives and or uh, tail pulleys that would fill up with dust and fines and whatnot. So they'd stick you in there and shovel it up and keep them clean so that they don't jam up or, you know, fail in the future due to heat and other fines getting into the bearings. Oh, of these, this is a tail pulley? Yeah. So what's a tail pulley? The tail pulley is the final pulley on the end of the belt, like at the face, we'd have a tail pulley. Then you have a head pulley, and that would be where it would be transferring on to another belt, right? So you have a head, a tail. Oh, and you have to keep that area clean. All of them, yeah. So even when you're working at the face, I mean, that tail pulley would have to be continually choweled out as well. But then you're actually operating the equipment at the same time, so you'd be able to watch it, you know, fill in if it is. If it's filling in too fast, then I guess you've got another issue where you have to find out where is it coming from. So go and fix that, you know. By training the belt and or maybe changing your roller or something that's, you know, gone sideways. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot to deal with. Yeah. (laughs) How long did you do that? So the shoveling part is you're keeping the tail pulley or the... Well, there's head pulleys and they they would require either you'd shovel them down or you'd get a scoop in there and uh, clean them out or a bobcat or something and clean it up. How heavy is this stuff? The dust is actually quite light, but it's just, um, just a pain. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And you're doing that for the whole shift. Well, you we have, yeah. You'd have a couple of guys and you'd be in there just shoveling away. And then some areas they would require, you know, an air compressor and then you'd blow it out. And that'd be your final touch. Yeah. yeah. So your only goal that day is keep that area clean so it doesn't jam. Yeah, pretty much. What happens when it jams? Well, you'd be good then for, you know, maybe a week or two after that. Then I have to get somebody else in there and clean it up or check on it. But do you get in trouble if it jams or anything? No, because they know it, it may, but uh, it's up to supervision to, you know, organize the crews and send them in there and clean it up when they're ready for it. Find that work. Yeah. So then after that, you move on to machines. Slowly, yeah, they start to introduce a few machines to you, like a small scoop. You know, there would be a two-yard one that we had there at the time. So you'd have a fellow, it was just a supervisor at the time, trying to show you how to run the scoop. And then basically, this is what turns it on. This is what shuts it off. This is how it steers. This is how the bucket works. Jump on and go. No paperwork involved, no nothing at that time. <laughs> We're talking early 80s, yeah. <laughs> so what was the best machine you ran? Well, I liked them all, actually. Couldn't really put my finger on my favorite, but I guess I really enjoyed running the continuous miner. So the mining machines actually cutting the rock. That was pretty interesting. It's always very, very busy watching where you're going and keeping it straight and keeping it online because there's a grade seam to follow there. Following that is, it was challenging. What's a grade seam? Well, that's uh, where your ore would be uh, mostly concentrated. So you have, in our mind, three different seams. So there's a top seam, a marker seam, and a lower seam. They're all about a foot apart. And they're clay compared to the you know potassium chloride that you've got in salt 
formations throughout the rock. So they would really show up quite dominantly and they run flat and continuously throughout the whole mine. So we would follow that for knowing where we have to be up and down. So the entire time you, the seam can be shifting. Well, the seam will wander. Yeah. And you have to follow that. So you're, you're actually driving, it's a 180 ton piece of equipment and you're cruising along. It's like a, like an airplane going through rock because you can put it into a barrel roll if you want, or go up, down, left, right, follow this thing. Yeah. Follow the seams. You can put it into a barrel roll? You don't want to. What <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it where it would get stuck up against the wall when sliding into it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's drilling or what's it doing? No, you've got two main rotors on ours. Uh, some other mines, uh, they have a four rotor system, but we don't use them. So our two rotor uh, miners, if you really want to get into a description of those, <laughs> starting right from the face, I guess we're going backwards. But anyway, most people will ask me questions right from the, you know, how the ore gets to the to the bins or whatever. But we'll start from the face <laughs> okay. or the other way. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the miner is, uh, at that time, Marietta Miner is, I guess, the company name. And they're in the States somewhere. And at that time, they must have just come up with that design just by talking about what they wanted and what they needed for a size and a spec. And what they got there was a 180-ton piece of equipment. You know, it's uh, got a 60-ton gearbox, and that's empty with no gears or oil in it. So it's a pretty solid piece of equipment. <laughs> so then you've got two rotors on that thing. So these rotors turn into each other. One goes clockwise, the other one goes counterclockwise, and they meet in the middle, right? So they cross over each other. And then there's uh, basically uh, wedge tape uh, shaped rotors on there. And as it's advancing, it pushes itself into the face, forces the rock behind it. And as the rotors turn, it forces it up the throat of the miner. And then there's, there's, a, there's a conveyor. It's a, set of, a series of flights. And uh, that cake takes it all the way out to the back. And there's a tail that swings left and right and go up and down. And it dumps onto another conveyor and behind it. But as it's advancing at a one and a half feet a minute, you know, it's at 11 foot six high and 18 feet wide, it can advance that foot and a half a minute. You've got two huge uh, 500 horse at that time. Now we're up to 700 horse motors. But uh, you have two of those, one on either side that run through this gearbox. So they scream around what, 3,000 RPM. And then it's through the gearbox, you're down to 11 RPM at the face. That's how fast the rotors turn. So you can imagine the amount of torque that's on those rotors as it's being pushed at one and a half feet a minute. <laughs> at 11 <laughs> RPM. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then it, so it starts off at the face and then it goes up this pipe and then it goes on. Well, through a conveyor. Through a conveyor. Yeah. What's the difference between this conveyor and the, the belt? Well, the belt is a, uh, a rubber uh, fiber type of thing you know it's a it's made in the states as well it's yeah. non-flammable material about maybe three-eighths of an inch thick and it's got splices on it eh? and it goes for miles and miles right but the minor conveyor it's all steel steel flights and chain so i mean it, it pulls that out of there and it dumps that onto the mobile conveyor in behind it because the miner has to be followed right so they have a we have a mobile conveyor behind that which uh Three operators will run that on a uh, thing we call a robotram. So there's 16 sections on these robotrams. And um, it follows the room belt, you know, dumps onto that. But the miner dumps onto the load car behind itself. And then it's transferred from one belt to another across this robotram that follows it through the pattern that we have to cut for the room that we're in. <laughs> <laughs> What's this robotram? It's a robotical piece of equipment. Uh, it's supposed to be smarter than we are, but it has to be told where to go once in a while, and it doesn't really like that. But you do have to make corrections as it's tracking the miner, and it will follow its own track going in that way, especially when you back out. You should just be able to sever the interlock cables and uh, unplug everything else from that machine. And then when you are ready to go in reverse, then the guy at the very back activates it and starts to move it. So, and then it follows itself out again. Along parallel to the belt, to the room belt. Oh. So this RoboTram transfers the product to the room belt. Yeah. Goes over itself all the way down to the tail. And there's a guy back there in the tail that's got a tail there. He can lift up and down and swing it left and right over the room belt. And he dumps it onto that. Oh, because right? 
you're weaving to keep yourself in the middle. So you're moving all around. The Robotram is behind you moving mm-hmm. all around. And then, but the belt is stationary that you're putting it on. The room belt is anchored. Yeah. Anchored. So it has to be transferring in all directions. Well, it, it transfers it from one section to another, right? And it's Robotram is one continuous uh, serpentine of sections, right? 16 sections long. It's 340 feet long, this piece of machine. Yeah. So it follows it along, and our cuts are about 320 feet long, and some areas are 220 is what they claim. But from the tail pulley out, like you have to reach from there across the pattern. It's kind of tough to explain unless yeah. I drew you a picture of how it's set up. There's different patterns that we cut you know, for production or development. So in the, in the development setup, you're cutting basically two stress drifts to protect the longevity of your main belt line, which will eventually become a panel belt area or what we call main lines. And uh, there's a travel way beside that. And then another stress drift on the other side. So there's four passes going in one direction. And then they're all connected with cross cuts, connecting them all so you can start going again after your belt extension. <laughs> How long did it take you to learn <laughs> this piece of equipment? Uh, you're trained. Uh, everybody's different. Some guys catch on to it right away. Myself, maybe maybe a month. You've, you've got it, you know. Yeah. What are some of the complexities in operating it? Well, you have to put up with the noise and the heat. It is the hottest spot to be, depending what you're cutting and whatnot, because all of the dust from the Robotron, once you've got your ore going, the miner's got a 50-horsepower fan on it, so it pulls that air off of the Robotron, basically, or a, a, a good part of it, and that dust will eventually go right over top of the miner operator and into its own tubing. So as the miner's cutting that fan on it, that's 50 horsepower, will uh, suck basically just dust and heat off the front end of that miner. But I mean, it's still pretty hot up there. In a first pass cut one time, I had taken a, uh, a thermometer with me to work. And I just put it in the cockpit because I wanted to know how hot this was getting because you have sweat dripping off the end of your nose when you're done. And it was 110 Fahrenheit in there by the time we were done. Oh. Yeah. And you have to wear some sort of safety gear in there? Well, you've got your hard hat and glasses on, and I'll wear a dusk mask too with earplugs. And as time went on, I also got uh, earmuffs, so I wore earmuffs and earplugs. Because <laughs> it's that loud. Well, it bothered me, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think for safety, you need it. Well, the it. fan is, uh, you know, running at 108 decibels alone, so it's pretty loud there. And it's only about 10 feet from you. <laughs> <laughs> so all day long, they'd be like standing beside a jet out on an airport with it screaming and you're, you know, beside you all day. Like, it's pretty loud. How do you maintain your focus? Well, you cancel the noise. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, with that kind of hearing protection, it could, you know, almost hear my heartbeat. (laughs) Oh, man! (laughs) (laughs) The earplugs alone, like, they have different types and uh, the type I selected were already a 33 decibel decrease and then the earmuffs alone were another about 50 or so. So, I mean, it was pretty quiet. I, I canceled it right out, and I could hear myself whistle or talk. And actually, it's kind of funny how that works because with all the loud noise going on, and if you had a supervisor come up or somebody else jump up in the cockpit and try and talk to you, you could hear them better with that type of hearing protection on than not enough because it's the other sound that'll rule out whatever else you'd want to hear. So it's sort of overpowering that way. So if you have really good hearing protection, you can hear everybody talk to you actually quite well, better with that hearing protection than without so is the hearing protection electronic or is it just straight muffs? No, just straight muffs. And you can hear over 108 decibel fan. With my earplugs and I would, yeah. If I just had just one or the other, yeah. then it was still pretty loud and tough to hear somebody else talk to you. But you can hear them clearly. With the extra hearing protection, yeah. Oh, okay, so you need the extra muffs on top. Yeah. Yeah. I did. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just screaming at the guy like you're practically nose to nose and screaming at one another to hear each other. So that alone is uh, more noise. (laughs) (laughs) But if you could filter it out or find that frequency that's just, you know, right on for you, then it works. Yeah, absolutely. Once you get trained up on that, is it a drill? Well, it's just a miner is what we call it. Yeah, A miner at 180 tons with a 60-ton empty gearbox. Yeah, well, the whole the whole machine is very very solid. Eh? Like the the track frame, I don't know what it weighs, but yeah, there's uh, 300 gallons of hydraulic oil in this thing, and I think 200 gallons of gearbox oil and pumps and all kinds of parts and pieces on this thing that make it work. So, how often do you need to maintain that? 
they would like to do it more often than we give them the machine. <laughs> so we being on production now, we have to actually line those the type of work up. Uh, it is being requested, but some days we can't afford to give them the machine. But then you could pay the price by not giving it to maintenance to do proper maintenance on it. Right. So what makes it so you couldn't give them to that day? It might be the only machine that's available to uh, produce some ore that day. The other machines might be down. And if that's the case, then we have a good reason to send maintenance to the machines that are actually broken and that need some TLC. You know, So we have to shift the schedules and... And it's, it's, it's kind of bad for the really good machines because then they run forever without any real good, hard, uh, thorough maintenance. In the meantime, we'll do something called the splash and dash, which we're on the back shifts where uh, we have uh, two mechanics working for us and two electricians working all around the clock with that crew. We'll give them the machine uh, for a couple hours at night just to check over the oils and grease it and make sure there isn't anything ready to fall off, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I understand the fix those things so, dash now. <laughs> yeah. So it's very quick and then give it back to us. But at least it's had, you know, someone look at it. Yeah. When was the last time you had a machine fail on you? Uh it's it's random. Like you don't know. It's not every day. When that happens, really say. what do you have to do? Well, if it does break, depending what's broken, if the thing can still be moved around, then we will back it up and set it up for the proper, you know, electricians or mechanics to take a look at it and then they'll fix it. So it could take, you know, an hour fix or maybe it doesn't even have to be moved and it could be repaired, repaired where it is. But uh, if it has to come out like a, a severe oil leak or something, maybe you won't be able to tram it out. And, you know, tramming is what we call anything that moves in the mine. It's just tramming. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Any transport is tramming. Yeah, pretty much. Except for a truck. Then you're just driving, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How deep are you underground? Our mining level is 3,460 feet underground. So it's about a two-minute drive for a ride in what we call a cage. So an elevator would be comparable to anybody else, but we just call it a cage. I guess that's the mining term for one of these boxes that hold about 18 people. So down it goes, and yeah, two-minute ride going down. It goes about 20 miles an hour. So ears pop. So if you have a bad cold or something like that and you're trying to hold it back, your ears are going to be ready to explode by the time you hit the mining level. The pressure is so strong. Uh. <laughs> so highly recommended if people have a good uh, cold or something, don't even bother trying to go underground because it's it hurts. Or take a contact C or something and hope for the best. Yeah. How was it the first time you went down? It was neat. <laughs> oh. I loved it. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you weren't scared at all? No, no. I was really looking forward to it. And I was actually quite amazed at the, of the size of the tunnels and, uh, you know, what we were traveling on. Like we have four wheel drive Toyota trucks that we drive 30 kilometers an hour anywhere you want to go. I mean, the tunnels, uh, the travel way alone where we do all of our traveling, they are 25 feet wide and 11 foot high six. So you've got tons of room then. Lots of room. So you wouldn't be really claustrophobic. A lot of people, when they think of a mine would probably be thinking of wood and water dripping and looking up all the time because you're scared a rock's going to fall on your head. You know, and you're probably rubbing shoulders with the guy beside you, but no, we have trucks and you rip around. <laughs> so it's pretty much a small town down there. Oh yeah, it is. I always said they should build like a 7-Eleven underground or something so we can, you know, <laughs> go somewhere to have coffee during the night. Yeah. <laughs> but we do, we have offices and whatnot and there's air conditioners and fridges and, you know, microwaves in there. So, yeah. So you go down, it's a two minute ride down. Yeah. And how long do you spend down there? It's a 12 hour shift. Okay. So, yeah. How do you keep focused on that machine for the full 12 hours? Uh, which machine? Not the mining well, phase? The miner. Well, you have to follow it, that seam. for The farthest out right now, it probably takes the guys over an hour to even get to the face. So, and they get, you know, half an hour for lunch too. So you're not on that machine for the full 12 hours. So there's a lot of travel time there involved and, and then your lunch breaks. If you have any downtime, then as well, you're not operating. So you're waiting to, you know, get a repair and then carry on. So... On average, you're probably getting about maybe four to five hours of cutting time on a, on a shift because uh, once the pass is done as well, there's relocating time and then you have to set up again and go in another direction. Follow, follow the preset pattern that we have, you know, set up by engineering. So for a 12-hour shift, you're operating for four to five hours and the rest is transport, lunch break, regular break. Yeah. Area maintenance. You know, you may have to scale or you may have to bolt in that area. What's scale? Well, that's a manual piece of, uh, a manual way of taking down any lucids in the area. 
So we have an eight foot bar that's solid aluminum with uh, iron tips on the end. So you grab that thing. One has a 45 degree end tip on it. And the other one is a straight tip. So you can poke and sound with that. And then you just put that bar in there and using the proper procedures, you can take down these pieces of loose that are, you know, above your head <laughs> basically and let them drop down. And later on, we'll get a scoop in there when we do our belt extensions and clean up. So you're kind of just cleaning the ceiling. Well, the, in the sides, right? The sides, uh, okay. There, there's nothing really from the back that'll want to fall in. But sometimes when those seams uh, start to give way, uh, when I mentioned bolting there, they have a machine that'll put in, you know, on the average, like 60 Dewey Dags, what we call them. That's about a half inch to three eighths uh, steel bar. And we resin them in and put a block and a plate on there. Mind you, we've eliminated the blocks now, but we just go with a steel plate and a nut. And uh, that holds up the ground. And that one bar will hold up approximately 22 tons of weight over its head. So it's stuck in there in the back and holds these seams together because they do start to separate. And you may get a drummy area that will have to be dealt with. So we do uh, either pattern bolting or sticking it in a few bolts here and there that we'll just call monitors. And keep an eye on those, you know, and see if the ground is getting any worse. And every day we come in with our scaling bar and you sound that out and you check these little areas. And if it's getting worse, though, well, then we may have to uh, screw in a few more Dewey Dags. <laughs> Dewey Dags. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you say the ground, yeah, is it the ground you're standing on, or what are we talking about? Well, here? the ground in the back, overhead, overhead ground. Yeah. So. Yeah, we don't want anything falling on us, and whatever's in the ground, then a scoop tram or something like that can come along, and we can rip that out physically. Okay, so anytime you're referring to ground, you mean the overhead ground? Yeah. That's on top that could fall in. You betcha. And then <laughs> Mother Nature doesn't wait for anybody, right? <laughs> yeah. So now you've poked a hole in Mother Nature. Well, she wants to heal up just like we do. You have a cut, it fills in with blood, you get a scab, it grows over, it grows always. Same thing on the, in the mine. So it never, ever stops. The rate that it does close in does slow down over time, but it never stops. So right after you're done a fresh cut somewhere and backing out, that ground in the first 24 hours can move over two inches. So you've got 3,600 pounds of pressure per square inch all around you all the time. So it wants to come in. So the patterns that we're cutting actually control that type of ground movement. (laughs) (laughs) And you're putting these dewy dags in that are attached to the frame that's already present? The overhead structure, yeah. 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 If If it's needed. You know, like guys will sound their area when they get to the face and we'll see if it's still solid enough to continue or do you want to start bolting if we have to what sound the area well they'll tap the back with this eight foot scaling bar right and it'll give off a a drummy noise or it won't give off anything like hitting something rock solid like it's you can tell the difference right like or tapping on a cardboard box is pretty hollow as compared to you know a tree right like there's a there's a sound difference so guys will get used to that and uh get to know if it's drummy or not. The really experienced guys can probably tell you how far up that is, where the separation would be. So when we get drilling, then that'll really be the truth of the game and see where, you know, where the slip is. Because when there's nothing there, there's nothing coming out of the hole as far as uh, fines when you're drilling the hole in, right? So as a supervisor, you should be there when you're watching that and have them drill. And then you can see actually how many slips you have because there may be more than one. And uh, if there are multiple slips, then you may have to increase the number of Dewey Dags that you'd have to put in for that particular area and tighten up the pattern a little bit because you could be saying, well, this isn't that great. So we better do more bolts than just sticking in a few monitors. So what are these slips you're talking about? Well, the divisions between the different seams above the three that we were just cutting on. So there's solid rock above that, and there are other seams above that yet. And uh, they like to separate. So anytime you see a separation, that would be a slip. Well, you wouldn't see it, but you would hear it throughout your sounding uh, process. Okay, because you'd hear that hollow sound. That's right. And then we're taking Dewey Dags and bolting it on in a certain pattern. You'd be yeah, resonating them in there and holding these layers together. So if you had a, let's say, a good example would be, I actually saw a video on it, which was kind of cool. The best way to explain it, if you had a, a number of uh, quarter-inch pieces of plywood and you layered them on top of each other and put two blocks of wood on either side and you stood on that, you could probably flex it and it's going to want to move. So now all of a sudden, the Dewey Dag would come along. So take a nail and think that that's the same thing because it's going to hold them together. So drive a bunch of nails through the same pile of plywood sheets that you've got hammer them across there and then stand on it i'll bet you it won't move 
So how far in are you putting these Dewey eggs? They're eight feet long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you use to get it in? Uh, it's a piece of equipment that we've gotten from Ontario where they're a hard rock mining company out there. It's called the Tamarock. And uh, there's, a, there's a head on these machines. And what caught our interest actually is that it's a safe way to uh, do any type of ground control with that piece of equipment because you don't need another operator standing out front. The old way, we used to bolt like right over our head, like you were in there and it was all a lot of manual work. Uh, the drilling was, of course, done by the machine, but you would have to hand feed the resonated tubes in there by standing off of a, a little uh, trailer on there or a, a loading deck, I guess, and then you would hang onto the boom and the operator would lift you up there and you'd stick them in by hand, about six of those tubes, and then, uh, then you'd hold them there with your hand and he'd hand you the bar physically. And then you'd line it up with the hole and you use that machine to push that bar in there and spin it. So you, this, this resin would mix, right? So it's uh, like, like an Xboxy, right? You have to mix two halves together. And then once that's done, then it sets up like a matter of seconds. It's rock hard. Yeah. You, okay. put, your, you put your block and your plate on there and the nut and it's, it's there forever. So these, <laughs> oh, so these dewy eggs are, they go eight feet in and then you pump epoxy through it. On the on the tamrock, it's uh, eliminated the guy that has to actually physically put that bar into the hole. So the tamrock will do it all on its own. It indexes itself around whenever it's needed. Like uh, it'll start with the drilling, you know, and you drill that depth, and you bring the steel down, and then you index it around, and the the bar is then lined up with the hole exactly. And before you can put that in there, it has to be uh, filled up with resin. So we have some tubes that are air shot into the hole, the uh, same length of tubes. Actually, no, they're two foot long tubes. And you put in uh, three of those, three or four, and you just fire them all in there until you can actually hear the, the hole fill up. Because if there's a number of slips that are up there, then it may take more than what you're you're thinking. So you just keep filling it into your, you think it's full. And then uh, the bar gets pushed up mechanically too and spun all the way in. And then once it's tight and reaches the back, then uh, you index it around again and you put the plate and the block on there in a nut tighten her up and go to the next one so it's similar to putting <laughs> loctite on a screw going pretty much yeah okay. but you've got to work a lot faster yeah like that. <laughs> and it solidifies in seconds oh yeah that's pretty quick then you put the crossbar on it doesn't uh harden up until it's mixed right so until yeah. that even when you fire them in there you haven't really mixed it the tubes would probably be breaking in that the hole that you've just drilled with the tamrock but uh, it hasn't been spun yet or mixed up. So until that bar gets in there, which has a number of grooves on it, it will mix it as it's uh, put and being put in. Okay, so these two-foot-long tubes have epoxy in them that aren't mixed yet. That's right. They're two halves in one tube, right? Okay, and That's then come, yeah. that dewy dag yep. comes up and punctures those then. Yeah, it smashes them and mixes it up. Okay, and then yeah. spins. Okay, this yep. makes way more yeah, sense. Yeah, we, we spin it all the way up as it goes, so... Okay, and then it breaks it in, yeah. and then within seconds, it's solidified. Oh, yeah, for sure. We put that crossbar on. And as soon as that bar reaches the back, you can let go of it, and it's not going anywhere. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so that crossbar is there just in case. That's right. <laughs> this is actually pretty safe then. Oh, yeah. The old bars that I was just talking about, doing all that manual, those bars were a lot bigger. They were like over an inch, like inch and a quarter. Very, very heavy, and still eight feet, but yeah, really big. And they would hold about 35 tons each. So the Dewey Dag is a little bit uh, lighter steel. Like it's maybe the same steel, but I mean, they're just smaller physically. Yeah. So then you would have to just use more. <laughs> <laughs> what system do you prefer? Oh, I prefer the Tamrock. It's a lot safer because like I say, you're taking that guy out of, uh, let's say, of a bad ground area. And then you've got one guy on, a, on the machine, on the Tamrock, you know, extending the boom out. And it can go out about 15, 20 feet. So you're well away from any rock that's overhead that you're trying to address, right? So as the other way, you're standing right under it (laughs) back in the day, yeah. But then once it's already drilled, somebody's up there throwing the tubes in. But the drilling process is where it could be dangerous for it to collapse. Well, not yet. We're trying to prevent that from happening. That's why you're in there. Ground control uh, procedure, really, that we have going on, right? So we're trying to control the ground to make it fail 10 years from now, let's say. Okay, so it's... it's We're telling is, Mother Nature we haven't left this area yet. Okay, so you this know. is an extreme preventative measure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay, yeah. this makes way more sense. So it's way down the line where it could happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's just something that we do to control the ground and <laughs> yeah. tell Mother Nature to slow down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> hey, how long you been working in the mines for? 
I've been there uh, 43 years now. <laughs> I'm still loving it now. I was an equipment operator for 18 years, a uh, minor operator for about 11 years. So all the other equipment below that, I ran, ran the scoop trams. I really love the scoop trams. You know, you have five yards, six yard buckets, three yard buckets, twos. No, they, they bought a one as well, but we don't use it anymore. But they were a lot of fun to operate. So what's a scoop tram? Well, the scoop trams in the different sizes that you have, it just moves the ore around. It's like a, you know, a loader that you would see here on surface, but uh, it's flat and wide and you know, with 26 ply tires, they're all slicks and are on this thing and they're diesel powered, you know. <laughs> so you're just booting around, scooping up product. Yeah, moving it around or cleaning it up or, you know, we have some rehab machines going along with like Alpine miners with these balls that trim out, you know, bad ground or a rehab an area that we want to get back into. They'll clean up the walls with it and they'll, you know, carve out the floor and make it big enough and safe enough to start mining in those directions again. So they call that just rehab. That ore has to go somewhere too. So they don't have a belt to dump onto. They won't do a belt extension or anything like that. They just use scoops to haul it either away and pack it somewhere else. So they'll set up a stamler and that machine will uh, take the ore and break it up and dump it onto a panel belt and takes it back and we'll dump that into the bin. What made it so enjoyable for you? The shake, rattle and roll, I guess. The noise. <laughs> <laughs> the heat, the yeah. power that you've got at your fingertips building road let's say if you're filling in an area that's really bad and rough road then you know you're taking fines and you're smoothing that out and i got a lot of compliments over the road that i was making because it was so great <laughs> oh because it was so clean and yeah nice and level and i even get off and hand picked some of the bigger boulders out that you know when you're backblading it and trying to make it flat then some of the uh, other rocks would pop up and you know that you're gonna you know when a truck hits that you know you're gonna feel it so get off and throw that rock off to the side and smooth her out so I, I actually made some nice little potash roads down there. <laughs> you took a lot of pride in your work. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was great. I liked it. <laughs> yeah. And then, then you would also scale with it, too. On all of those machines, they have a, a huge solid steel horn on the corner. So when you go along, uh, instead of hand scaling, then you could use a scoop and uh, go in there and start raking the walls off and breaking down, you know, stuff off the corners and clean it up. And then you've got the bucket to clean up after yourself, too, eh? and clean it all up and make it look good. That sounds so satisfying. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> and of course, we used the scoops too for our belt extensions, you know, pulling in the structure and adding in the rolls of belt and whatnot. So you'd use that to tram things around the area. Oh, yeah, and move it. It's, it's a real big backbone of the industry for sure. Any of these scoops. Yeah. Then you moved on for another 18 years. Well, 18 years as an equipment operator. So running all of that stuff. And, you know, my last one was 11 years on the actual boring machine, right? So I love that. And then you've got your own crew to play with there too. So, you know, you're following them along and that was what, a lot of fun. You love all the equipment. You love the the machinery of it. Yeah. And then the satisfaction of a job well done. And then you're scaling the sides and everything looks clean and smooth. Yeah. You, you know, you're, yourself, you're going to be driving along that someday on a truck and it better be good. I don't like bouncing around on a truck. That nobody, makes sense. Nobody does. Yeah. So the ground's not paved. You're the no. one. You're the one making it. I mean, even if you had one of these alpines going along and and cutting, let's say, floor in an area, the head of that thing is uh, it's a ball, right? So two halves, and they're spinning along. So even if you advance six inches, you're still leaving a ridge in the floor. So you'd have to leave some fines behind and, and smooth that out, make it flat again, right? So I did a lot of that. I did that for like five years, running a scoop tram behind alpine miners and rehabbing different areas around the mine. That's got to be kind of soothing to see it smooth itself out. Well, when you're on those machines too, they don't have any shock absorbers on them at all. It's just the tires, right? So when you're driving along, you know, as hard as you can go, either second or third gear, and you're hitting bumps and, you know, the only real shock absorbers you've got is, is what's in the seat and the tires, you know, air-powered seat there, and you can adjust it to your weight. So, I mean, it does take quite a bit, but I mean... You hit a good enough rut, and it'll throw you up out of that seat. There's seat belts in them now, but boy, it never used to be. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've been there 43 years. What's changed since you've started? Oh, safety. Things have really gone uh, harder and better, I guess, for the employee. You know, now we have canopies over our head and on all the trucks, and the scoops have uh, built-in overhead protection as well. Never used to have any of that. So you're fully exposed before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. You'd have your back to the wall. You know, as you're driving the scoops, because you sit on them sideways, right? It's not a head-on thing, so you can go in either direction. 
Oh, really? Like, yeah, oh, yeah. Like the scoop trams are like, you know, 25, 30 feet long. So you're not going to turn that around very easily. So you got to go in and, and out. So you drive in with your bucket and get a load and you're driving out engine first. So you can look both ways. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. <laughs> so what's a great day at work for you then? Uh, right now I'm in supervision. So just say it to be a great day, actually be, you know, meeting our goals and achieving our uh, targets for the day and maybe even exceeding them. And, you know, the crew's really been working hard with, with no downtime and, uh, the mill is happy and your boss is happy and the guys are happy to me. That's the A one day. <laughs> uh, totally. You know, what's the mill? The mill is what's cr- actually uh, crushing the product down to a small enough uh, particle that they can run it through a flotation system and then separate the potash from the, the rest of the ore, right? Like when we cut it, it's called muck. When they get it, it's more of an ore and they're making the product, right? All right. You're running that boring machine. It goes on that RoboTram. Yeah. That RoboTram puts it on that conveyor belt, mm-hmm. which somebody's maintaining and shoveling to make sure it doesn't jam. Then it gets on that belt. Where does it go after that? Well, a number of belts all the way back to our underground storage. So we have three bins underground that we're using right now. They all hold about 1,500 tons a piece. So we load from the top and then there's a cone at the bottom. You know, they're about a hundred and some feet deep and uh, there's pan feeders underneath them. And when we have to send the middle a little bit of muck, then we have, uh, we run the pan feeders and they fill another belt or dump it onto that belt. And that belt takes it up to <laughs> what we call the surge bin. And that surge bin will regulate, uh, you know, how much uh, we can dump into each one of these loading pockets for the skips to take up. So the skips will take up, you know, 25 tons of load is what we're doing. You know, a skip load at a time, left and right. So there's two skips, right? And they, they are uh, roped together, basically. So they're always, always in unison. So when one's coming down, one is going up. So, right. Okay. So when we get down, then it lines itself up to the loading pocket, which is holding 24 tons, and it d- automatically just dumps it in there. So in a matter of seconds, it has dumped it into that skip. And when it's full, the one on surface has dumped its load to the mill, and then the tree places. So it's pretty much a vertical conveyor then. You bet. So you've dumped it into that bin. We have three bins, and we draw from them. And I'm watching that right now in dispatch, so I actually run those pan feeders. So I keep these skips running as well as I can and optimize the storage space that you've got as the muck's coming in from the face. So I can see on a, on my uh, display what we call a MAC system. It'll show you what miners are running, and uh, I can also see all of the belts and how much of a load is on them. So if the guys are moving, because I know that the cuts that they're making, I'll have to make an educated guess on which bins to be running more often than the others. And then uh, keep the skips moving as much as we can until service is actually full. The service can't take any more than we just run the skips enough to keep their feed running. So right, like they're able to do, I think our nameplate is around uh, 1,200 tons an hour they can run at. Right now we're down to about 550 tons. An hour is what they'll actually process. So they crush that up and they make product at that speed, that rate. So that's how much they're using from the underground to make their product at the end of the day. <laughs> is the 1,200? So they do 1,200 tons per hour? They they are able to do that, yes. If they, they, if they had muck from the underground, they'll take that 1,200 tons and process it. So about a quarter of that actually, or, or close to half of it is what they actually use in the product. The rest of it goes out to a tailings pile. You don't need it. You don't need any of that. Nobody so, does. So of the 1,200, you get five. So the mill processes that and they sift it out. They're like bakers. They know exactly how much to crush, how much, how, what the rates are. I'm not a mill guy, but yeah. Yeah, yeah like they, said, they, they have acids and isotopes that they add to the stuff to break it down and make it, I got make you. what we need. Yeah. yeah. So when you're managing all these bins through all the conveyors, how much information is coming at you at once? It's whatever you want to look at. <laughs> you have a number of different screens. And how do you coordinate what? it all? It's whatever you want to uh, watch. Well, we have, you know, at the beginning of the day, I'll come in there earlier uh, in the shift and uh, like the crew doesn't start work till eight o'clock and we're there around seven o'clock as supervisors and we organize, uh, you know, where we're going to send our men and who's coming in. We take the phone calls, people that can't make it and whatever. So we have to sort that out and adjust our manpower accordingly. And then through a series of priorities that are already preset, that's where we'll be sending men to. Oh, so I you know, already have a game plan? I know. Oh, yeah. Okay. You have to have, right? You just don't scatter. <laughs> we have to know where everybody's going, and we will tell them where to go and what to do for yeah. that day and who you're working with. 
and what you need to take with you and whatever. So how many people are you directing? Right now we're at 16. We used to be up to about 24, 26 guys. And now we got uh, 16, 17 a crew is what we're trying for. How important is communication in your job? Very. It's number one, actually, right beside safety, I would say. I mean, if you don't talk about anything, nothing gets done, right? So everybody has to be on the same page. And uh, so when we talk to the crews, we give them as much information as we can for that particular unit so they can set themselves up better as well for you know success and they can see what they're up against for tonight. And we will set actually targets for them. Like we think that this number of tons for the night would be acceptable. Anything short of that, well, we're going to need some really good reasons <laughs> why, why, why we can't make that. So I'm in the middle of all that, that yeah. part of communicating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However, you have been in most of the roles, so you understand how much can actually be done then. Yes, I've done the work, so I'm pretty hard to fool, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. Some guys know that. Like, I'm up in dispatch, so I'm at the phone all the time. So I have a phone. I've got an IP phone that'll give me two lines right there, so I can take numerous calls on that one. And there's an emergency phone, so that's a hard line phone that never, ever fails. And then there's the radio system. So I've got a radio that communicates to everybody underground, so I can talk to people directly in the mine from that uh, like the offices on surface, right, that I'm monitoring this stuff from. Watching all those screens, uh, being on a dispatch uh, surface office, I'm monitoring how hard miners are actually cutting, and I can see if they're starting or stopping. And actually, when they're even relocating, I can make a good estimate, you know, that that's what they're actually up to. You can see how many amps that these machines are pulling. So, I mean, if it's moving, it doesn't take very much. And if I know that they were done that particular cut and they have cut for 30 minutes to an hour, whatever it would take, whatever's left over in there, I can estimate, you know, okay, they are moving. They have to be done by now. And if they're not, then they'll phone me right away or something's broken. You know, they'll call me right away and I'll be calling the mechanics or electricians and telling them to go out there and direct all that traffic. So you, I'll see that anyway, right? You have a visualization in your mind of what they're doing. Oh, yeah. And then you can see how much product is actually coming. Yep. So on the pro- belts, yeah. Filling these bins up. I can watch the bins fill. I know what's in each bin. Uh, I set the pan feeder timers so I can pull out of the, any one of those bins for as long as I want and alternate between the two of them, like all three of them anyway. You can alternate that. And I'm watching that screen too, as well as the mining units, but all the belts. Like there's numerous screens you can keep clicking on. And then I uh, have two huge, like 76 inch screens in front of me, as well as, you know, a couple of monitors in front of me to do all the paperwork on top of that. So, but it's great. <laughs> You're using a lot of brain power, man. <laughs> Some days you go home with a bit of a headache, but you, know, you, yeah. you probably had a very successful day anyway. So. Yeah. How do you recharge after one of those days? Well, you go home and you go sleep right away, right? So, you know, any given day, like you're looking at close to a 14-hour day, right? So by the time you get home, uh, you know, there's travel time in there and all that. So by the time you get home, you really just want to relax, maybe watch some TV and go to bed and then get ready for the next shift. That's a heavy load. Yeah. And you still love it. Yeah. (laughs) There's no life like it. What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I already asked you what's the best part. What's the worst part about the job? Oh, uh, well, of course, when somebody injures themselves, you know, so uh, actually in dispatch, you're head of the emergency uh, response and getting that done. So there's security there too, which will send out the mail out or if you need to call out to a mine rescue team. Like we've had rope rescue before on a day shift. So that was pretty cool. So I had to find uh, rope rescue type personnel on surface, notify the head of the safety department. He was lucky he was just there. So he did that work for me, but he had to be notified and they got together their guys and they all went down the shaft and the whole site then is at a stand down, so we have to notify everybody and all work on the entire site comes to a standstill when something like that is going on. So that gets to be a very busy day. If you can get the guy out in time, you know, MD ambulance is called and then they have to uh, load him into an ambulance once he gets to service. And it could take over an hour or maybe even two hours to get a guy up. To so, get him up Well, you have to sta- stabilize him at the face and then the very slow truck drive you know, to the shaft uh, to get them up. We have a STARS uh, helipad there too. So STARS has landed out front and they'll wait for them. What's the injury you've seen that's memorable? The worst one that comes to mind was we had a guy actually, uh, a very bad severed leg. So that was a bad one. That took like forever, it seemed like. Yeah, we actually had MD go right out to the mining unit. So now they've got no face experience. So you need the proper people to take them out there. And we had a mine rescue personnel that took them out there and, 
they loaded him and got him in. But boy, he needed fluids right away and all the rest of that. So we had to line up all that and I had to contact uh, MD Ambulance. So I was the missing link for the communication on that end. So when you talk about communication, like you're, you're there and you're in the middle of it all. And in the meantime, you know, uh, management is asking you questions all the time too. And they're calling you and whatever trying to find out what's the status or what, what do we need? Like how far out is he, wherever, you know, giving constant updates, right? That's high pressure. Oh yeah. And then keeping track of everything that you're doing and you'll have to submit a personalized report of everything that went down. So don't forget. (laughs) (laughs) How do you cope with that type of pressure? Oh, you just do it. I might just find, you know, as a natural thing to do, but it doesn't really bother me, I guess. You're built for it. Yeah. (laughs) So when you're saying this rope rescue, what's rope rescue? This particular fellow that needed the rope rescue, which I've never really seen in the mine. I mean, you're talking, you know, you think everything is fairly low, like only 11 feet. So where do you need a rope rescue? Well, the bottom of our bins actually is where he uh, fell through a manhole, like uh, the grating. He was up quite high. Like these bottom of these cones are like, you know, 80 to 100 feet high. He didn't close the, the lid, like going from one level to another. So there was a, you know, a cage there that would give you the walking service, right? And he had it still up. So as he's looking up at the cone, he's walking around there and he stepped right into that spot where he just came out of, right? So he fell down to the bottom layer, which was another 10, 12 feet down and he banged himself up pretty bad there, couldn't walk. Uh, So we had to excavate him from there and rope rescue him from that level down to the ground and get him onto a truck and out. He couldn't walk, you couldn't carry him out of there. So they got him onto a stretcher up there, and then we uh, tied him up with a series of pulleys and ropes and lowered him down from that point. Okay, so he was 80 feet up, but yeah. he fell 11 feet down. Yeah. Okay, I gotcha. And the so rope rescue team had to come in. It was like his leg was broken, and he was delirious, and he cut up his arm, and yeah, he was in pretty rough shape. How's he recovered? Great. Oh, <laughs> is he still working there? He's one of my partners right now, actually. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if he's one of your partners... How emotional did you feel when that happened? Well, you are, you know, emotionally strong a little bit, but yeah, you can't let that get involved. You have to stick to business and make sure they're getting the, you know, right treatment as quickly as they can and as efficiently as possible. So stick to business. That's high pace. Yeah. That's a good saying though. Stick to business. You have to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Al, is there anything I haven't asked you? Uh, I'm not too sure. It's up to you. (laughs) You're the one that hasn't mind before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What's the best safety protocol you've seen enacted since you started? Well, our fire procedure is one thing, you know, uh, that's incorporated into everybody and we train for that. We actually have a simulated, uh, fire procedures or a fire, uh, emergency in the underground. At that point, I've got a, a cap, actually an activation system in dispatch office that'll, uh, it's like a fire alarm that you would find in a school. So I just pull that down once the glass tube breaks, right? It sets off a stench gas in the underground. And that smells like rotten eggs. So they call it a stench gas. It's, uh, don't ask me exactly what the chemical makeup is of that stuff, but I mean, it sticks to everything and it really is rank. And we have a number of those stations underground that are all armed by an electric cap, a blasting cap. And uh, the uh, magic elixir, I guess, is inside there. And uh, it blows up the little tube that's holding that stuff. And uh, the airflow takes it to all the mining units. So if I'm not able to get a hold of a mining unit or anybody that's now downwind of, let's say, some incoming smoke, and the mining unit is still going and we weren't able to stop that unit, uh, the stench gas will alert them that there is a major emergency going on and they'll be calling me or they'll be finding out what's going on and then they have to seal themselves in at the face. So they're not going anywhere. You're not driving anywhere. So we want them to seal themselves in at the face. And up there, once they seal themselves in there, they have an emergency sled. And it's geared with everything that they need, from bratises to water to food to all kinds of things that are in there. And they'll drag that along and they'll put it up, put it at a particular spot where they can actually seal themselves into a dead-end hole where the smoke won't be able to get at you. And they'll wait for a rescue there. And they'll be taken out when it's safe to do so. So there is a bit of a procedure to do that. In the meantime, uh, I can always shut down the belts. And usually when all the main conveyors stop underground, I mean, the mining machines can't cut anymore. So the guys do fool me right away anyway. So even if the gas hasn't hit them right away, I may have activated it and it hasn't got to the face. So then when they phone me, I says, hey, 
the stench gas is coming. We've got a fire emergency. And right away they want to know where, and I'm not going to tell them where because they, they, they start to second guess themselves and they may want to try to come into the shaft and we don't want them to. So we want them to stay at the face, seal yourself in, and then you're safe. We know you're safe and we'll let the mine rescue team deal with it from there. So there's a huge procedure with that going on and then I have to get a, somebody that can you know scribe for me and they'll write down everything that I'm doing and who I'm calling. And, and as they call in, from the face once they are sealed in they'll tell me uh you know who they have actually with them because we may have had a water truck driver that pulled in there so that'd be an extra guy to the unit or anybody else that was in the area they may have run there too and sealed in with them so i need a list of who's at every location and then i'm also recording all of that and uh, i don't line up the mine rescue teams but that's an auto call once security has been notified that there's a fire underground so they call them out and then once the team is ready to go down, I've got all of the paperwork done. These are the guys that are underground. This is where they are. So now they are, they're the only ones that are allowed to, once they've proved that the areas are safe, they can release them or tell them to come out of those refuge stations. And then they can make their way back to the shaft or, or whatever, you know, just carry on from there. But they do have to check the airflow and they do that, you know, constantly. They, they have a rough idea of where the fire will be and the airflow that we're up against and how they're going to contain it, or how are you going to fight this fire? So there's a lot of science put into that and procedures. So, 100%. Yeah. So that stench gas that goes off, what's it do? Well, when anybody smells that, they know that there's a major emergency, and they either better be getting themselves into refuge and then calling me or calling me right away and finding out what the hell's going on because we may have had a false activation of this thing, which has happened, and then it's just disgusting to be down there. But uh, sometimes we have evacuated the mine just to let the stuff purge through the system, and then, then you can go back to work because so it's, it's so ripe. It's only oh, it's so ripe. It is very bad. Rotten eggs, man. Oh. But it's only there to alert them that there is a major emergency. Yeah, that smell will cut through anything like burning oil or like dust, heavy dust, anything, it'll come through there. <laughs> oh, that makes sense since some people, it, you might not be able to hear it because of all the uh, right, machinery. You will smell it, yeah. <laughs> so then... Even if you had a cold, I'm sure you're going to smell it. Or you're going to react to it. Your body's going to be, what's going on? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So then they grab that sled and, they, and you're, you're not telling them where the fire is so they, they don't make any calls. They just go no, right to the end. We don't want them to move. No, they would go calls. right to the face, so dead end. Yeah. Seal themselves in there. They yep. have enough supplies to keep themselves safe. And they're mm-hmm. going to call you with a list of who's in there. Once they're sealed in, yeah. Yeah, you're filing all this paperwork. And that they're all safe. They don't want somebody to twist their ankle while they're getting in there. Okay. So if somebody actually did get hurt, then uh, the mine rescue team has to know that. And we have a guy out there that has injured himself. Now you have to take him out first. So you get to, you have to prioritize that. Well, they will. And, okay. Yeah. How long do they normally stay in that dead end for? Well, every person uses up cubic meter of air an hour then it's done so you have to figure out where they are how big is your area how long do they have in there so some drifts are like 220 feet long and if you seal that improperly you could probably utilize that whole thing so if you've got one guy in there he could probably stay in there for a year if you had enough food right (laughs) (laughs) yeah but as the list goes on you could have 20 people in there so now that's a little bit different so now how long do they have so on average, I mean, they could stay in there for over eight hours, you know, not with no problems at all in anywhere that they seal in. And we have a lot of pre-made uh, refuge stations too that are already sealed in. People just have to run to them or drive there and uh, get inside and, and close the uh, Velcro straps and behind you. And then you're okay in there. And in there, there's lights and there's picnic tables and all that. So it's set up waiting for you to be in there, right? in the event of an emergency. They are off limits to everybody unless there is an emergency. So if you're caught in there and there's nothing going on, that's reasons for termination. Like you're not allowed to be in there at all unless we have an emergency going on. There's playing cards in there and there's lots of food and different things. But the main concern is the injuries and then the amount of air they have in there. That's going to limit Mm -hmm. how long they can be in the dead end for. I would say, yeah. What's the longest you've had somebody in there for? Maybe four hours or so, four or five hours. Okay. Yeah. What would cause a fire underground? Well, anything that may, you know, you've got electrical that could be shorting out and start a fire that way or a diesel line that would be starting to drip onto something hot, right? And it'll take off or you may have a a conveyor that's got uh, maybe belting that's been rubbing the wrong way or we had one actually that stopped, uh, like a room belt conveyor had stopped 
during that day. We didn't need it running anymore, so we shut it off, right? And then as it sat there, I guess the bearings must have been uh, shot on that thing. So it must have been just glowing red already. So as it's sitting there, it heated that belt up enough to actually start burning it. And that belt is like non-flammable, but it's like a, it'd be like a piece of charcoal that you'd be burning, but emitting a lot of smoke. So it really polluted that particular area and it was all sealed in. So nobody even really caught on until we had a construction crew member go in there and he says, hey, he says, you got heavy, dense smoke at this one area here. And I said, well, what are you guys doing with the scoop in there? Like, I mean, maybe because <laughs> I thought they were supposed to be cleaning up in there anyway, and that's what they were supposed to be doing, but he couldn't even get to the area that he needed to be in due to the smoke in there. So when it's said, it'll explain to me, he says, well, we've got a fire, something's going on in there. So we had to activate the system then, and everybody seals in until we can get a mine rescue team in there and take a look at it. It was a huge area, actually, like, you know, over 100 feet by, you know, the 11 high and 30 feet wide. But by the time we had all the bradicing taken down and, and got in there and stabilized things, you know, the walls were just black with soot from that thing burning. In you that know, whole, in it, that it, area? It wasn't even open flame, but it was enough to generate, you know, a pretty toxic smoke. And it actually melted the belt in half. The belt was still actually just slowly burning away on its own. Oh man. That's how hot that Because of that hot bearing. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that sounds pretty <laughs> intense, Al. You know, so there's things that happen. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, should we call it? Okay, whatever you like to do.